Hi, welcome to Matters of the Heart and Soul. I'm your host, Janie Charlotte. Matters of the Heart and Soul is a podcast to raise awareness and awaken humanity to all that is within. We want to be a beacon of light on your life journey. Welcome to Matters of the Heart and Soul podcast. I am your host, Janie Charlotte, and I'm co-hosting with Mr. Russell Bruce. Hello, everyone. All right. So in today's podcast, we are talking with Ms. Tammy Rowe. Tammy is a registered nurse who was recently assigned. Um, she had a COVID-19 assignment in New Jersey. She was actually in Inglewood, New Jersey, and um, she was at the Inglewood Medical Center. Um, and so we wanted Tammy to come on just as being a frontline worker, just to kind of give um, some eyewitness account to the, some of the things that we've actually been hearing on the news and a lot of things that's been circulating. So we just kind of wanted to talk to her. So welcome to this show, Tammy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate awesome. it. Awesome. So um, Tammy has been a healthcare provider, well, in the healthcare field for over 19 years. Uh, she has a master's degree. She has um, some background in med surge, telemetry, um, also nursing education. And she is an owner of a small home health business. So Tammy, I appreciate you um, just taking this time out to talk to us. So just can you kind of start off and tell us about your assignment in New Jersey and just what that environment was like at the Inglewood Medical Center? Um, sure. Um, the assignment was um, it was a short assignment. It was for six weeks. It was just due to the COVID crisis, the staffing crisis that was all happening with this whole, um, you know, COVID thing that was going on. It was uh, my first day was very, uh, very intense. It was very different. Um, other healthcare providers and other frontliners can probably relate to, you know, what I'm saying, but I, I just wish I could find the right words to describe it, but it was just very different. Um, you were on your toes, kind of like your entire shift. You just couldn't plan your day. You didn't know what was going to happen. Um, there were a ton of like rapid response and cold blues. My medical, you know, professionals, they understand some of that lingo, but um, there, there was just a lot going on and, and it was just, unbelievable um it was just unbelievable it was very intense it was a very intense environment but also it was just also more mentally exhausting than physical okay so as far as uh your assignment you were assigned on a medical telemetry floor at that yes what was your patient load like um, it, it would vary, uh, depending on what unit I floated on. They had multiple units, but it would average. My first day was about maybe six patients. Um, and I think that the nurses kind of came forward and started speaking up and saying, hey, this is too much to have this amount of patients with everyone having these respiratory issues. And we're calling codes and rapid responses so much. So after about this, maybe a week and a half, they, uh, the hospital kind of rearranged some of the staffing. So we were averaging around three to four patients instead of having your average um, six patient um, load during the day. Okay. And from my understanding, the entire hospital was the COVID hospital, right? Like all, everything was COVID patients. Yes, okay. correct. So um, tell me a little bit about if you if your day you went in and you had about four patients that day was all four of your patients COVID positive and kind of walk me a little bit about walk us through your day. Um, and you don't have to be complete because I know your days are long. I know what that is. But I want really you to just kind of paint the picture of uh, your patients that were COVID positive. What caused you to call the rapid response team? and stuff like that? Like, were okay. they just not able to breathe? Um, just anything, just so that you can paint the picture. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, it uh, To paint the picture, e- each of my COVID patients, they all displayed just differently in their own way. Um, but they all did have one thing in common where they were struggling to breathe. Um, we had patients who, who did have more comorbidities, maybe, They may have had hypertension. They may have been like a smoker or other issues, other health issues. And those patients 
did seem to struggle a little bit more um, than some of the patients who had no kind of health issues prior to COVID. Um, with that being said, you were just kind of running up and down the halls all day. Um, there was really no time to kind of sit and relax and kind of have that moment where you can kind of chart and kind of gather your thoughts for the day. Because as soon as you would leave out of one room, you would have another call bell ringing and the patients are just scared. They're saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And a lot of times, too, even though they were on oxygen and, you know, had everything that they needed, I think it was more so anxiety because when we would check um O2 saturations. They would be in the night, like 94, mm-hmm. 95, but they were they weren't able to take those those real big deep breaths because their lungs were filled up with fluid, mm-hmm. of course. So it felt like they were kind of breathing at a fast pace, like they had been running like long laps. But they were breathing, but I think mentally because they couldn't take those those big, you know, those good deep breaths that they felt like they couldn't they couldn't breathe. So it was a mixture of a little anxiety. And then you had those patients who would just their saturations would drop in the 50s and you would have to hurry up and like put them on a non-rebreather mask and turn the oxygen up to 15 liters and you know kind of get them to lay on their bellies so that they their lungs could you know mm-hmm. expand and we would refer, you know change the bed position and just try to get their O2 saturations to come up some of those patients they did um you know, respond well to that. And some of them didn't, which was the next step of, you know, calling in the ICU, calling the rapid response, letting them determine if the patient, you know, needs to be intubated or, you know, sent to ICU and things of that nature. So they were all different in their own way, but they all dealt with the same thing, which was with the struggling of breathing. Mm -hmm. And then the patients that declined rapidly and the decision was to go to ICU or to be intubated, um, do you feel like they knew what they were um, consenting to? Do you feel like a lot of them didn't want to be intubated? Um, And what did you see with the ventilators as far as them getting intubated? Did some of them come off the vent? Did most of them not come off the vent? Um, so to answer the, the first question, as far as the consent, um, I'm pretty sure walking into the hospital or coming in, you know, you're saying, oh, I don't want to be intubated. But when you're in that that situation where you mm-hmm. can't breathe, your mind kind of goes to do whatever you have to do to save me. So I had not seen uh, a patient absolutely say, no, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be intubated. There was no one ever. If they knew what they were consenting to, I really highly doubt it because in an emergent situation you don't have time to say okay this is what's going to happen to you you know you can't breathe so it's more let's get this patient you know intubated and then it's kind of after the fact they kind of maybe you know know what's going on uh as far as patients coming off of the ventilator i have seen a few that, that have been extubated um they don't they end up staying in the hospital a little longer um after they're extubated they come back up to up to the med surge floor or the telemetry floor, whichever, you know, if they have cardiac issues or not, that all determines which floor they return to. But they they do well, um, and some of them don't do so well because they suffer um, the, uh, what is it? The, oh, what's the proper name for it? I'm sorry, but when you, when you go with um, oxygen, with no oxygen to the brain for mm-hmm. quite some time, they all suffer like that brain injury um, from lack of oxygen. So some of them, just mentally weren't there anymore um, because of the state, you know, because of the state that they were in, they may not have been intubated soon enough or, you know, things like that. So it's, it's been an array of different situations. Like I said, no situation was actually identical, you know, the, except for the fact that everyone just displayed that trouble situation with the trouble of breathing. That's the only thing that was in common. Everyone else's, everyone's story was completely, was completely different. And it, it was just amazed. It just amazed me um, with the COVID. And I think that's what left a lot of people on their toes because they d- don't know. You know, like diabetes, it affects you. You have high blood sugar. You have low blood sugar. You know, it's kind of somewhat similar with everyone, but COVID is different with everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as COVID nineteen, the virus itself, um, do you feel like this wasn't a natural virus? Um, and that we just were not prepared. Do you feel like this was something manipulated somehow? You know, because we've we've heard those stories about it, you know, being in the lab and stuff like that. And then 
Um, what are your feelings and thoughts about that from seeing patients firsthand? Um, from seeing patients firsthand, I, I really honestly feel like this is something um, that had that, that has to that was manipulated or you know uh, created. Um, the only reason I say that is because I mean just the, what it does to the body. Right. The, the human body is, is very unique, and you know, with any like the common cold or just regular things that you know us as growing up with children, you know you know we we got all types of little germs and stuff and our bodies find found a way to you know to kind of heal itself or whatever the case may be but this particular one it with the way that it sends your body into that cytokine storm where your body starts to just overly respond mm-hmm. to it it just makes me feel that you know this is something that's just way out of the norm and it, I feel that it had to be created to do bodily harm to someone yeah. with the intent to do bodily harm yeah. yes and Let's talk about the management. Um, We've heard a lot about hydrochloroquine uh, being a treatment. We've heard our president say that. Um, What was the treatment like in the hospital that you were in? Um, I know you said mostly uh, positioning, uh, prone positioning. Mm -hmm. Uh, What was the medical treatment like? Which I know, you know, if if the lungs are filling up, you think it's pneumonia, they're probably giving them some IV antibiotics. Um, Can you just kind of walk us through that a little bit of what you've seen yes it was a lot of um when like my first couple of weeks there was a ton of the hydrochloroquine and the azithromycin um that was pretty much all that we saw for the first few weeks and then for the coughing they would give them um, like the teflon pearls to help you know help with the cough but everybody's treatment was the same up until two weeks prior to like the ending of my assignment i saw where the hydrochloroquine was kind of like out of the window. And then when I started looking at the news, I saw that they were no longer wanting to use that. They were kind of going to go another route with other drugs and things. So um, I think they were following suit with what the government was recommending. And then they kind of shifted out once they said, hey, we're no longer going to, you know, want to use this. Were they getting on the, whatever, uh, but I- with the Z-Pack and the hydrochloroquine? And just what you were able to... Uh, no, I would. I would actually okay. no. It seemed like it wasn't doing anything. Um, it wasn't doing anything for them. I don't. I didn't see where you know the patients would, you know, see a little a little bit different. You know, they would still, you know, just lie there like they're just completely miserable, mm-hmm. even with the even with the medication. Yes. Yeah. Um. Tell me about the PPE situation, because that was the other big thing. Because, um, you know, we've had a lot of healthcare yeah. systems, a lot of furloughs, a lot of nurses that were laid off um, for whatever reason. Um, but, you know, locally, um, I know some people that were laid off because they wanted to reserve the PPE for the hospitals. So like their sister um, offices, like maybe the family uh, family offices or like the urgent care, stuff like that. They were a lot of the providers and nurses were furloughed and laid off. Um, so did you guys have a PPE shortage where you were in New Jersey? Um, there wasn't that that I'm aware of. That that I'm aware of, there wasn't a PPE shortage. There were um, we we pretty much had masks. We did have to use the one mask um for the entire shift though. We couldn't change our mask out. Uh, we had to sign it out. We had to use them um for the entire shift unless they became wet or soiled of some sort. Um, they had gowns. They had like the disposable gowns in the very beginning, but once it got to like the mid part of the week, you would see the, I'm not the mid part of the week, the mid part of my assignment, I'm sorry. You would see where they were having those, um, like the washable mm-hmm. gowns that you would just have to put on and go in the room. You would take them off and instead of, disc- instead of discarding them in the trash, it would go in like the, um, the, like the linen bin to be washed and recycled. Um, so I don't know if that was just a shortage or, or if that was them kind of reserving. And then also they had sent out a, um, like a memo saying that they were going to start sterilizing the medium size um, um, N95 mask. And they did like some type of process of, of sterilization, which I've never, I've never heard of. I don't think even in healthcare, 
that was never even, you know, I've never heard of them sterilizing, but they came up with this thing where they were sterilizing them. Um, luckily, I didn't wear a medium, <laughs> so I didn't have to wear it, thank God. But they had nurses that were wearing the recyclable, I mean, the re, you know, the ones that had been sterilized. So, yeah. again, that's, yeah. I'm, and so, like, being a nurse, I mean, how was that doing your job, taking care of patients, you know, keeping your N95 mask on for, you know, three, four days? Um, and, you know, double gloving and maybe washing the gloves, putting them back on. I don't know. I've heard a lot of different things. So how is that? And how do you feel like that affected the care for these COVID patients? Um, it, it affected the care. How can I say it affected the care? It's just, there was no, there was no standards with this whole PPE thing. I mean, people were just kind of making up stuff as they were going along. I saw nurses that would wear a pair of gloves um, and then they would, they would kind of double glove. And when they come out of the patient's room, they would remove the first layer of gloves and then they would sanitize the gloves that are on like the bottom layer. And then they would just put on another pair of gloves on top of the ones that they just sanitized. It was, I had never in my career have seen that, but people were just making up stuff. And it wasn't just the nurses, it was nurses and doctors. They were making up stuff as they go um, because no one really knew what, you know, what to expect. Wearing the mask all day long was very rough um, as well because if you're, you know, running in a room and you're helping a patient and everybody's moving and you're trying to, you know, get things situated, it's like really kind of hard to breathe and you start to feel like, you know, like you're like you're almost suffocating because, you know, you're not getting the fresh air. It's like you're just breathing yes. in recycled your own recycled air. It's like you're suffocating almost. So we took like frequent breaks just to kind of go in the break room and just to remove the mask, just to take a deep breath and try to get a sip of water in if, whenever we could. Um, and, you know, we just made the best yeah. out of it. it. It was very different. It's very different, but definitely you have to make the best out of it. So did you see any of the medical staff that actually contracted the virus as a result? Um, the ones that I, the ones that I didn't know, we, we had a, a, um, we had a time where they had um, offered everyone to have the, um, the antibody testing and a lot of the regular staff that were actual staff, not agency, but staff at that hospital, a lot of them came back positive and just listening to conversations that they had, they were saying that, um, you know, before everything kind of took over, before the news kind of took over everything, they were getting these patients with these symptoms and they didn't know. So they, they, they didn't have protection. They were just going in the room, um, you know, taking care of the patient. And then like a couple of days later, they, they noticed like one nurse will get sick and then the other nurse will get sick. And then when they kind of did some tracing, those nurses took care of like the mm-hmm. same patient. And then another scenario was with the rapid testing. There were a ton of false positives, I mean, false negatives with the rapid testing. And so what was happening with that, they would do the rapid testing, the testing will come back and say that they're negative. The patient will be actually positive and the patient will go up to a floor and the nurses would take care of them without the mask and the proper PPE. And a lot of nurses were contracting it that way as well. Um, so now it's like if they have a false positive, I mean, a false negative test, I'm sorry, then they, we would still treat them, you know, as if they have it because those tests don't always come back. The results are not always accurate. Yeah. So an- another question in reference to the testing, I'm not sure how much involved you were in the testing, but in some of the documentation that I read, it stated that the patient tested positive for COVID SARS-2 that leads to COVID-19. Yeah, I heard a little bit about that as well. Um, but I'm not too involved in testing, so I don't really have a lot of information on okay. on that. Um, can you explain, just for our listeners, the difference between the rapid testing and the antibody testing? And then why want to, why would you want to know yes. um, either? Okay. Well, the rapid, the rapid testing is just like a, you get a quicker response. Um, I'm not sure all of the procedures on how it's done, but it's a, it's a regular COVID test, but you're supposed to get the results back in like a 24 to 48 hour time frame versus the regular test can take about five days. Um, 
so I, I'm not sure as to why those tests were coming up um, saying, you know, the patients were negative when they were actually positive. I don't know the link between that, but I do know that, you know, that was a result of those, the testing not being accurate. And as far as the antibody testing, the antibody testing will just show, you know, it's, it's a blood, they, they draw blood and it shows if, you know, if your body has built any immunity to COVID-19. Um, so the antibody testing is pretty accurate, but it's only really accurate after you've, you know, after you've had right. COVID-19. So if you, if your tests come back positive, you know, and, some, and I heard a lot of nurses say, I felt sick, but I didn't have all of the, you know, the symptoms. I had just a lack of taste and, and my ears had pressure in them, but I felt fine. And they had the antibody testing mm. and they have antibodies for COVID. So they had the, you know, they, they were exposed. So I heard a lot of that too. So those nurses were still like coming to work because they didn't feel that bad because these nurses had to keep their benefits. They had to keep, you know, they still had to continue to work in order to keep everything that they've, you know, gained in that hospital. So they were coming to work too. And now the antibody test is here. They all say like a couple of them were like, I knew, I thought that I had it. I just wasn't sure. And I'm like, what? How could you not, you know, but it, it, it affects everyone differently. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a big mess. Um, tell us <laughs> a little sure. bit about like um, the the number of cases your hospital seen there. Um, the number of cases, I stopped keeping mm-hmm. track because it was it was so many. But the entire hospital, I think the hospital has about over a thousand beds and each bed was they were at a full capacity and they have two they still in New Jersey which is a lot different from Georgia but they still have two patients to a room I haven't seen two patients to a room in a long time just due to like the HIPAA and all that stuff but they still have two patients to to each to each room and they had they have like they can house over a thousand patients it's a pretty big hospital and they were they were all like filled to the max. They had some patients that were being discharged to the, what do you call that? The hospitals that like the military had set up, like the camp, like almost like the tents and stuff that they had. They had some patients that if they, if they met certain criteria and they were COVID positive, they would transfer them out to that hospital to make room for other wow. patients. Um, yeah. Can you share? Some light on yeah, like what we bad. were seeing in the media with um, everything that was going on in New York, um, and I know you were in New Jersey, but can you shed any light on that? Like you know, we were seeing it was like all these bodies and all this stuff. Um, do you feel like that was accurate? What the media was showing? Yeah. Yes, it was very accurate. I have um, a, a couple of my colleagues that are in New York and they would send me pictures and stuff because I was asking the same questions. Um, but yes, they were, the morgue was just at its capacity. So they had the refrigerated um, trailers that that served as the morgue. So they would, you know, put the bodies in the refrigerated trailers until the funeral homes had room for them because the funeral homes didn't even have they didn't have enough room. They had funerals that were literally pushed, like they were on waiting list and they were pushed, you know, months out, even, you know, still now because the funeral homes were staying with the news, like the local news was like they were interviewing the funeral home directors and they were saying they would go from about two to three, you know, maybe funerals a week to now they're at like, they do like two a day. So they're at like 14, between 12 and 14 funerals, you know, per day. And that they they just said they're at their capacity. And so that's why, you know, they they have nowhere to put these bodies. So they have the trucks, um, you know, and she showed me like pictures of it. It's it's real. It's so sad. Yeah. Um, And like, you know, family can't come in. So patients are dying alone. Uh, What was that like as a nurse seeing that and, and managing that? That was that was like one of the toughest uh, parts because um, you know being a nurse, we're, I'm just used to like getting my patients better, you know, motivating them better. You know, home case, and you would have patients like die every day. We were like we started counting like how many patients will not die 
you know, like that was like a goal of how many would get to go home for the day. Um, because so many people, they were just dying, like back to back to back to back. I, I have never in my life, in my career of nursing, seen anything like it. it was That was the hardest part um, because you felt kind of like hopeless. Um, the family members were calling so much that they, they actually had to stop the family members from calling the nurses because one nurse was on the phone with the family member and she had another patient that was literally actively dying. But the family member was like irate and she couldn't hang up on the phone. They had to, the other nurse had to call a response, but it was all delayed because the nurse was on the phone with another family member. So when that happened and that patient died, they made it so that the families could no longer call the nurses and distract the nurses on the unit. The doctors would would um, arrange, align, you know, the phone call with one family member to be a representative for the entire family because you had the mama, auntie, cousin, brother. I mean, and they were all like all day long, just calling, 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 calling. The nurses couldn't get their work done. Yeah. So it became like overwhelming in a lot, um, in a lot of different aspects, but they did come up with a, what they, they brought um, iPads to each unit and the families could call and schedule a time to like FaceTime um, their family member. If, you know, if they didn't, if they didn't already have an iPhone, they would FaceTime them, you know, and make that time with all the family members there to kind of talk to them and stuff so that they wouldn't feel alone. But that was at Inglewood. I'm not sure if that was at all hospitals, but I just know for Inglewood, that was one of the, the things that they did for, you know, for the patients. Wow. What was your um, assessment as far as the age that this virus was really more prevalent in? Like, was it elderly? Well, and what was the youngest COVID patient you've seen, including a COVID death? Um, okay, the the youngest COVID patient that I had was 28, 28-year-old. Um, the oldest, the, the most, the most that I did see, to be honest with you, was between the 50, between 50 ish and 70 ish. That was a lot of, um, of what I saw. And it was a lot of husband and wife or a lot of, uh, people that were in the household together, mother, daughter, you know, you would see the mom come first and then you would see like a couple of like days later, the, the, you know, the daughter would be admitted, you know, things like that. It was a lot of family, um, a lot of family admissions going on, but it was, I would say the youngest was like 28. The oldest, my oldest patient was about 89. That was the oldest, but average, it was like mostly was between the fifties and like early seventies. Okay. Another question. If if you were to contract COVID-19, say you test positive, what treatment would you want to receive? Oh, I, that's a it's a great question, and that's a question that I I don't have an answer to because everyone is just different. Everybody's you know body is different. I may not need the aggressive treatment like someone else, but if my if my case were that bad, um, I would I, I don't I, I just I I don't know. It's hard to say. That's a hard question to answer. I just would want to receive great nursing care and just give me a. a iPhone with some FaceTime where I can talk to my family, you know, (laughs) but as far as what medicine would I take or what would I do? That's a, that's just a question. I really don't have an answer for because I just really, I really don't know. Cause and, and no, I don't think anyone really knows. They're still even trying to figure it out. When I say they meaning like the government and all the higher ups and, you know, some of the pharmaceutical companies, they're still trying to figure it out. And oh, I I really don't. I really don't know. I really can't say that I would say that. Just keep me alive. <laughs> that is the best way you can. That would be my my answer for right now. Wow. Um, Tammy, were you scared at any moment? Did you? Were you scared? Like, am I going to leave this assignment? Am I? You know, am I? Why did I sign up for this? Why did I do this? At any moment, were you scared? and my patient was completely blue o2 saturations were 54 and he was intubated like right at the bedside i felt like a new nurse like i didn't know anything because it just 
it was just shocking to see someone go, you know, that fast on a unit. When it gets that fast, you're normally like in an ICU type of setting where you have everything you need, you know, you can kind of help. But the doctors came in, they kind of did everything. And all I could do was just stand there. They had everything they needed, but I just felt, I felt helpless. I felt, I did feel a little scared because that was when I think the reality check was, okay, this is no Mm -hmm. joke. And then the next day I went to work, I started seeing the same thing. And then the next day and the next day it was all the same thing. Cold blue, cold blue, cold blue. There were so many cold blues and rapid responses. It was insane. So I was absolutely scared. I think I cried like my first, I say like my first week. I was like, I want to go home. But, you know, I prayed about it. And I'm like, maybe I'm here for you know, a bigger purpose. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I tried to lean. I leaned on my faith a lot. And I just kind of did what I felt was right. But. I I wanted to come home. I wanted to come home. Like the first week, I'm like, I, I, I can't. But I had to think about it. I'm a nurse. So whether I nurse here or if I go back to Georgia, COVID is yeah. here. So there's no running from it with this, this line of work that I do. So do I just stay here and, you know, make it work? Or do I just go back home and deal with the same thing? You know, so I just decided to stay there and rough it out, you know. Um, leaned on my faith a lot like I said and I I got through and my antibody test was negative prior to coming home so I I wasn't exposed that was um that was uh, amazing that was great Mm -hmm. so yeah definitely scared though I would say so are you seeing the virus tapering off or is it still about the same what are you seeing I saw it I saw it tapering off so the unit that I was on was all COVID Uh, my last two weeks had it to unit was COVID COVID patients. It was not COVID positive catching COVID, but they made it so that the nurses would not like, you know, cross over. So if you had no COVID patients, that's all you had. You didn't have some and then, you know, a COVID and a non-COVID. But the day went on, I came back the following week, and we had no COVID patients on the unit. So the unit went from a full unit of COVID patients to none. Tammy, do you still have your earbuds in? Um, Yes. Can you hear me? I can. I think it's just kind of interfering a little bit. See if you could just take them off. um, Because I think that may just be interfering just a little bit. Okay. Okay. Is this any better it now? It is. I think that's what it was. You were just coming off um, a lot of static, but that's, yeah. Okay. Um, so that last question was... Um, like, are you seeing the virus taper off? Yes. And um, yes, so my response to that was, yes, I am seeing it. Um, I did see it taper off. We started off with a full COVID unit. Uh, then we kind of tapered down to one side of the unit being like a COVID unit. And then the other side um, was non-COVID patients. And the, the nurses who worked on the COVID side were not allowed to go on the other side just to prevent, like, contamination and everything. Um, but then as the days progressed, we ended up being, like, a non-COVID unit. So that unit no longer had, you know, COVID patients. So that was a good thing. We went from a full COVID unit to patients, all patients that were being admitted now with no with no COVID at all, no nothing diagnosis of it so um i'm gonna ask you because we're hearing a lot about um nurses and other healthcare frontline workers that are being that were being suspended or fired because they were speaking out about mismanagement of the virus um did you witness any of that and what is your take on that as well Yes. Um. No, I didn't witness any of that. Inglewood was a was um a pretty good hospital. They were there's like a teaching hospital, so it was it was really different. The environment was kind of like teamwork. We're gonna get it done. We're gonna work together. They had a lot of support from like uh the police department and fire the fire stations close by. They would come by and like um you know just thank us and just show a lot of love. So. My situation at that hospital was very, you know, different um, compared to what I did see on the news. And that was sometimes with like some of the private hospitals from what I could tell. Some of the private hospitals and nurses were, you know, getting in trouble for kind of bad mouthing um, is what they would say, bad mouthing the hospital like on to the news and things like that. But it wasn't really bad mouthing. It was just the reality, really, you know. 
it was it was what we were dealing with and a lot of times like you know with this whole HIPAA thing we can't really you know talk but so much but I just wish that a camera crew could just come for a moment and just see a patient that's struggling and breathe and they can't you know they can't catch their breath and stuff and I think that would change a perspective on a lot they we are the voices but they don't want to hear what we have to say because I guess it might be too harsh or too bad but it's it's reality of what it mm-hmm. is really um, did you experience where every day you were walking in and, you know, it was a different policy on, on, on the treatment, you know, of the virus because it's new. So it's not like these were standing orders. There's no standing orders. Okay. Well, if the patient come in with this, then we'll do that. Right. Um, so did you experience every single day change in policy from administration? No, we didn't really, um, we didn't experience that, not too much of a change. It just changed with the way that they wanted us to document, um, the way that they wanted us to document. It wasn't as intense. They just wanted us to not have spend so much time on the computer. They just wanted us to like be readily available for our patients. So they just cut our assessments down to all of the things that had to be charted in the computer system. So they shortened that, and then the memo regarding the um the sterilization of the mask, that was really the only thing they didn't, they were pretty much solid and set in stone. And again, I think because it was like a teaching hospital, there was like equivalent to like Emory here in Georgia. Um, so, you know, they're, okay. they're funded by the government. So things were a lot more organized versus some of the, again, the private hospitals are some of the ones that kind of struggled okay. with that. And, um, you know, we've heard that African-Americans have been hit really, really hard with this virus. Um, what's your take and what have, what were you seeing on the front lines? Um, I didn't see too many of um, too many Afri- African-Americans, but this is this is my theory. And I think I'll stick with it until I'm no longer here on Earth. <laughs> but, um, you know, there are when, when you do statistics and you, you know, you kind of look if you just like look at the the racial statistics on each state, you know, here in all 50 states, they're averaging with African-Americans between maybe 20 to 30 percent, give or take. Um, there are only about three states that have like 40s and 50s, uh, 40 or 50 percent African-Americans, which is I think is Georgia, Mississippi, and I want to say Louisiana, but it's only three of them. Um, so with that being said, <clears throat> since African-Americans are majority, you know, majority underpopulated, then our numbers, our percentage numbers will always be higher. And I use this example to say, if you have, if you have 100 um, African-Americans in a room and you have, let's say you have 200 Caucasians on another side of a room, if you have 30, 30 people out of the African-American group, out of that hundred people, you have 30 people that have COVID. If you do the percentage in the math, that's 30%. If you have 200 um, Caucasians in a room, and let's say 50 of those 200 have COVID. Even though it's it's 50, and and that 50 is more than 30, there are only 25 percent. Only 25 percent of that. That's what the I'm sorry. That's what the percentage will come out to be. 25 percent. So the 30 percent is is actually higher because there's less mm-hmm. of us. The 30 percent is higher than 25 percent, but there's more Caucasians and there's more cases. But because there's less of us, they're always our numbers will always be like, oh, African Americans, they're forty percent. But you know, you might have over oh, there's only twenty twenty percent of Caucasians, but how many Caucasians are you counting? How many cases? If you take a percentage out. So that's that's my take on it. Um and that's numbers. I mean, you can do the math yourself. That's numbers, that's facts, that's statistical facts. If you look at the racial statistics on states, you know this isn't made up this is just facts but because they put the percentage on it african-americans will always be like at a high percentage rate because but there's, there's, there's minority there we're minority got it right how concerned are you with states reopening do you feel that we're like at that tipping point to where it's safe to to go back out you know there's going to be some cases but they're going to be minimal or do you feel that this could reignite this flame and and we could start this cycle all over again. All right. Um, I'm in a state, I'm in Georgia. So I'm one of the states that, you know, opened up first. Um, there's a couple of ways I looked at it. When I first saw it, I was like, oh my God, why are they doing this? Um, 
but then when you really look at it, you know, COVID isn't going anywhere. And this is going to be kind of sort of like our new norm. You know, this is wearing the mask and protecting ourselves more. It's just kind of going to be the new norm. Um, so I feel kind of two ways about that. I felt that, yes, right now it may be too early um, to open up. But then also it's going to be our new norm and we can't, you know, we can't fight it. So people just have to use kind of like their common sense, you know, don't go out to these bars and things. Not yet. Um, but, you know, don't feel, you don't have to feel like you're trapped at home either. So it's a couple of ways to, to look at that. I try to look at it on a positive note. So, you know, if we have to wear the mask, we just have to wear them and, you know, just use precaution and do things, um, do things the right way. As far as seeing it happening again, um, with knowing how viruses live on surfaces, you know, they can't withstand a lot of heat. And some of our southern states, we, we get pretty hot here. Um, so I think that it will taper off as like we start to maintain that 75, 80, 90 degree weather. I will see the cases probably will really drop off. But what I'm worrying, what I'm really worrying about is when it starts to get cold again. And, um, you know, it starts to, that, that flu season starts to come back around. I... I I don't know because I don't know if people will get comfortable once they see the numbers start to drop in the summer and kind of get comfortable and forget all about wearing masks and hand washing. And, you know, then we're back to square one again. So I would just, you know, like to see how it plays out. It's just like I said, it's hard to even predict right now because no one really even knows, you know, has solid answers for this whole situation. So as, as far as the coronavirus is concerned, statistically, in comparison to the regular flu, you know, you see some data saying that, you know, the regular flu actually had more deaths in previous years than coronavirus. So why all the hype? What's your take on that? Right. Right. Um, They say, yeah, they say that the flu has had more deaths than the coronavirus, but I think the hype came from, you know, people with the flu, you can, you can live with the flu. You're going to be down for a little while, but after about a week or so, you know, you're back. And I think what the hype was with this whole coronavirus as to how fast, you know, you go from normal to critical and, you know, with the flu, you, you can get bad, but like not being able to breathe and how it was really like wiping people away was, you know so fast I think that's where maybe the hype came in from and then the fact of no one really knows like how to treat this with the flu you know we can get some Tamiflu you can go to the the drugstore and get some over-the-counter stuff but this COVID like nothing over the counter is going to stop pneumonia you know so I think that's where the hype came from because no one really knows everyone's scared Mm -hmm. do you feel that Fauci and Gates their their predictive model played a role in this where they were predicting all the deaths and cases how big of a role do you feel that played mm-hmm. in the hype uh i think it played a part um i think it played a part with i will say yeah. what's your opinion on vaccination if there's a vaccine for covid-19 uh are you for it no, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, I'm not for, and this is my reasoning. Um, you know, as 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 healthcare providers know, when you receive a vaccine for, of any sort, you're getting a very small strand of that the particular virus, so that your body can build antibodies and and learn how to fight mm-hmm. it. Um, but they don't even have a, a solid treatment in place for this. Uh, for this COVID. So who's, you know, it it affects everyone differently, of course. And, you know, everyone really has that symptom of not being able to breathe. I don't want to take a risk of, you know, you injecting this live virus, even though it's a small amount Mm -hmm. in my body and my body reacts to it. And then I don't even have a treatment in place that that can help cure me for it. You know, it's just not enough. um, It's not enough thing. It's not enough data. It's not enough stuff out there yet that, um, that I would feel comfortable taking the vaccine. Uh, yeah, right. And even it. being a nurse, injecting the vaccine to someone and somebody going into respiratory distress within 20 minutes is like, okay, uh, no. <laughs> you know, right. there's just too many things. Right, what are we going to yeah, do? Yeah, <laughs> there's too many things that have to be worked out that I'm trying to understand how this is going to be developed in 12 to 18 months. But um, yes. let me ask you this. Um where are we in healthcare? How do you, where are we moving from this, from this COVID-19? Um, 
where do you feel healthcare needs help? Like, what's to come, in your opinion? Mm, that's a good question. That, I, how can I answer that? I don't know. I don't know where healthcare, healthcare has changed a lot um, over the years that I've, I've played a part in it. Um, it. And it's just, I don't know. I don't know where we're headed. You know, there are a lot of nurses that, um, that are just, you know, they're, they're scared. Some are not, you know, some are okay. Some are saying that they want to get in another career and like go into education versus working in the hospital. I do maybe see a lot of nurses, you know, possibly coming out of the hospitals. Um, You know, a lot of the older nurses coming out of the hospitals, maybe doing, you know, maybe more home health or, you know, information technology stuff on the healthcare side. But I do see that, you know, there was always a shortage in hospital nursing, even back when I was in school. So I think the shortage is going to, is going to continue. But yeah, as far as where we're headed, I just don't know. It's just not the same anymore, though. I definitely can say that. Yeah. Let me ask another question here uh, in reference to, you know, you hear a lot of uh, things floating around on social media that hospitals and doctors were paid X amount of dollars to state that a person died from COVID when in actuality it may have been a heart attack or it may have been cancer related. Have you seen that or what's your take on it? Um, yeah, I haven't seen that where the doctor was uh, was paid to say that. But this is what I do. I do know um, you have you have COVID, you know, you have this virus and this virus does different things to the body. And it's either you you're either the patients died from pneumonia or they died from having a heart attack. And, and mostly what I saw was it was like a mixture of both. And here's why, because. When like when when you have COVID, of course, you know, it fills your lungs up, your lungs start to kind of attack themselves, fill up with fluid, you can't breathe. So when a person like can't, you know, can't breathe on their own and they have this pneumonia, um, their heart rate will go up. And I saw me working on a telemetry unit. I saw lots of high heart rates. I mean, sometimes they even go up into two hundreds. And this was because they just were having such a hard time of breathing. And this is how their body reacted mm-hmm. to it. Um, so they would go into cardiac arrest. There were a lot of, you know, the lab work that shows like the different cardiac functions, a lot of elevated everything. Um, and some people had like slight strokes. I mean, it was a lot of cardiac and it was also to where these people had pneumonia and they practically were drowning in their, in their own fluid in their lungs, you know, and they died from just complications of not being able to breathe. So it was a mixture of both. And that's COVID, you know, what COVID enters your body, it causes your body to do weird things. And, you know, this is this is just the response of it. Either you go into cardiac arrest because your your body can't handle not being able to breathe. So your heart rate goes up to compensate and your heart rate starts beating so fast that, you know, you end up having a stroke or, you know, you go into cardiac arrest. Yeah. So it was a mixture of both. Yeah. Um it's crazy. I mean, I could only imagine just being in that type of environment because you took on an assignment that that's different from your normal environment. So just walk it into that. So, um, you know, from one nurse to another, I just want to uh, commend you on exactly. on doing that. That's very heroic. Um, and is it's amazing. It's amazing. And it's good to have good nurses out there. Because, you know, in every industry, you have some rotten apples, you know. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just really want to commend you for doing that, you know, leaving your family to go take care of somebody else's family, not knowing um, if you were going to come back to your own family. So, um, right. and that's what's important. And as a, you know, a frontline worker, um, and you have family that's sick is one nurse It is literally one nurse to six, six, you know, sick patients. And you're having to do everything for that nurse. You're having to deal with the doctors, the family, everybody. So um, typically nurses are very good at handling stress. Um, they work great under pressure. Um, but I can only imagine that this was something you were, you just weren't trained for, you know, just weren't. Yeah, definitely. I felt like a new nurse. I definitely wasn't trained for it. Yeah, that's how I yeah. felt. 
What is your take on social distancing? Um, do you feel like this is this is helpful? Like, um, do you feel like it is causing more harm than good on the psyche, um, on depression, on people that are home alone? Uh, what is your take on that? Yeah, um, the the depressions I've I've heard that word a lot during this time with the whole you know being in the house and isolating yourself. Um, yeah, people, people do say that they are depressed and it was kind of, you know, it was kind of depressing for me too, you know, going through all of that stress, you know, working in the hospital, because, you know, normally you come home to your family and, you know, they help just take your mind off of everything. But I was going back to a hotel room just by myself. And that was like the first week was really, that was like the really roughest part of it. But Yes, it will. It can drive someone crazy. Just not it's the small things that we take for granted, you know, that you just don't realize that, oh, my God, now that you're not able to do how much it really helped you just going to work and being amongst other people and talking to people, even though they may get on your nerves, you might not like that coworker. But now that, you know, some people who who can't work now you know, can't go to work, they'll do anything. My kids used to complain about I got to go to school today, mom. <laughs> My kids now wish they could go to school. I just wish I could go to school. I miss my friends. I miss this. And I was like, you guys just complained about it the whole school year. <laughs> but it's the small things. And, um, yeah, and it does play a role. And I see a lot of people that, you know, it, it affects those who don't have family or, yeah. you know, who don't have, you know, a lot going on. I just, my heart goes out to the individuals because it's it's a rough time. Um, this whole social distancing thing is just is rough. It's rough. It's new. Everybody says this is our new norm now, you know. But it's it's surely an adjustment. I mean, yeah, for everyone. So with that said, how do you feel that it has affected you? Like what's the silver lining in this? You know, most of us have gone through isolation. We've had to contemplate a lot of things, go into deep thought. What do you feel that mm-hmm. you've gotten out of all this? Um, I definitely had some time to reflect, you know, on myself and it, I had to start shifting and looking at all of the positive things, you know, even though it may not seem like a lot, you know, I'm still alive. I'm, you know, I still have my family, you know, I still have my home and, you know, things. So I had to start taking an account for all of the, the, the small things that were still good, you know, cause it's not all bad. You know, some people are worse off you know, than I am, but I was just, I'm blessed enough to, you know, still be able to, you know, feed my family and, and have a job, even though I have to work, I have to go on the battlefield and work in COVID all day, but, you know, I, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have it. So I just had to kind of shift my way of thinking. And um, it is definitely like, just help me not take the small things, you know, for granted, the, the smallest little things that used to bring excitement, you know, I don't take it for granted anymore. You know, I, I try not to complain about much. I I try, I barely complain about anything now because I think this is the worst of the worst that I like I've ever been through, like all at one time. I've been through things, but this is just another level. Like the whole world is like closed. The whole world is shut down and it's, it's different. Gonna, it's oh my God. It's, it's not just like one or two people. It's like the whole world, the whole world has been affected. Yeah, and as a nurse, you want to save people, you want to mm-hmm. help, but you know, and like now, you got to help yourself almost. I had to be a little selfish, yeah. like okay, I gotta get my mental together, yeah. you know. So yeah, it's rough. It, it's it's rough. Yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. like on on an airplane, they tell you, you know, you have to, you know, drop that oxygen mask, take care of yourself before you can help anybody else. So that's true. Right. And that's really true. Yeah, I found that to be to be very accurate during my stay um, during this assignment. So, yeah. Tammy, we have a few more questions and then we'll wrap it up. Um, What can you say to our listeners about keeping their immune system up, staying healthy right now in the midst of this COVID era? What can you tell them as a frontline worker how to stay out the hospital, um, how to stay at home and take care of themselves? What can you share? Yeah, um, well, the biggest thing is the hand hygiene and keeping your face covered. Um, you know, so everyone, I guess, 
now some people are getting the picture, but everyone thought that they had to have like a medical mask to go outside. But, you know, you can cover your face with, you know, with some of the masks that their people are selling and getting creative at home and sewing or, you know, you can purchase that or just, you know, use a handkerchief or something and cover your face and always, you know, keep um keep your hands washed and carry sanitizer with you. And I know I'm guilty of it. I was guilty of it. And I know a lot of my friends, they kind of related to me. But, you know, like when we go out and we get food. We might run in the store, something, get gas, and might grab a pack of crackers or whatever. We don't, a lot of us, before this COVID stuff, we didn't wash our hands. We didn't, it's, there's no sink. You would just get in the car and just kind of open up your crackers. So if you go through the drive-thru and order some, some nice hot French fries, we would get our bag of French fries and we would just go in the bag and taste it. We haven't washed our hands. That was just a norm. But now it's that small stuff like that that, you know, carry a sanitizer because before you touch those french fries, you know, put some sanitizer on if you have to have it, if you have to eat it while you're on the go, or if you just have to eat that pack of crackers you just bought, you know, like sanitize yourself and just kind of be very careful with, you know, with what, you know, how close you are to people and things you touch and things like that. It's just the small, simple things. That's a whole nother conversation but those are just some of the small things that you know that that I took yeah. for granted I was at one that would go to the drive-thru and, and try to eat a little bit of my food while I'm driving to you know back to work for my break or whatever the case may be but we can't do that anymore we have to be more you know alert and into and in tune with washing our hands and sanitizing yeah um do you think healthcare providers are pivotal at this moment in overcoming this COVID era no um I don't think I don't think I don't think we will ever overcome it because I don't think COVID is going anywhere but I will say we will get to a better place than where we are now and I I felt that I saw the I felt hope when I saw that my my unit went from all COVID patients to no COVID patients. And there were still COVID patients throughout the hospital, but now we're down to one unit that doesn't have any COVID patients. That's, even though it doesn't sound like a lot, but that's major because like, okay, that's kind of proof that, you know, people are getting better. You know, this virus is kind of, you know, dying down a little bit. Um, but it, will it be here to stay? Yeah. Do I think we're fully overcoming and say, yeah, we've gotten over it? No, because we, I think it'll always be here. But definitely, um, to get a grasp of it and feel like that we can be on top of it and maintain it. And, you know, instead of going back to where we, you know, were with everyone shut down and nothing being open. Um, yeah, I think we'll overcome that um, part of it soon, but I just, no one really knows how soon. Do you believe the numbers uh, here in Georgia are accurate? Like after the first uh, week of reopening, they were showing that there were a lot more cases as well as deaths. Do you feel that's uh, media hype? That is, it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to say. I haven't worked in the Georgia. Um, I've been gone, so I haven't worked in the Georgia hospital settings to see how you know their trends have been. You know the hospitalization trends have been going. But do I think that they have been more cases? I honestly say yes, because people, some people here just, they did, a lot of people didn't believe that this COVID even existed. There are people that think that this is just a government fluke. You know, it's made up. There's no coronavirus killing people. Um, I never doubted it, but it really like put my mind at a different perspective when I got to New Jersey and I saw what it was doing to people. I was like, Oh no, this is no joke. This is serious. Um, so the numbers here, will I say that they will probably be accurate? I would say yes, because we're, I would say yes. And I, and this is another reason why I say yes to, I um, came home just for a couple of days after my first couple of weeks on my assignment, I had like a, a string of days off. So I was able to fly in for a day and fly out and then come back home and the flight was filled to its capacity leaving new jersey coming to georgia people were coming to see family members mind you this is the highest that was the county you know well not north but i was in bergen county but that was you know the area that was next to new york that had a ton of cases and you had these same people that were flying trying to get away from it they were flying here um, you know, not knowing if they were asymptomatic, if they had it, you know, and you have full flights of people still traveling. That's the stuff that wasn't on the news. 
I couldn't believe the flight was filled to the capacity. I thought I would maybe see a few healthcare workers just flying back home. Mm-hmm. You know, these were families, children, no mask, flying on the plane coming to Atlanta, Georgia, because they had family here. Mm. That's interesting. So that's the movement yeah. that I think, you know, had kind of brought a lot of the cases. And then when people found out that Georgia was open, yeah, you have people from all over the world that want to come here and probably vacate. They may have some money saved up and just come here and do things because they they're on lockdown at home. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the flight the the airlines never shut down, so that allowed people to travel, you know. And so yeah, I do think those numbers were possibly um, somewhat accurate. If they were Georgia residents, I doubt it. <laughs> Maybe <Yeah>. not, but <laughs> I think that they were accurate. Absolutely, good insight. All right, Tammy. So um, at this time, at this moment of this podcast, what would you say is the matter of your heart? It could be COVID related or not. Um, Just right now, as we're speaking, um, what is a big concern of your heart right now? Uh, Just the 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 that D word depression I, I hear it a lot I see it you know even younger kids um you know are dealing with feeling they you know feeling sad or not feeling normal because they don't even you know interact with kids and stuff everyone's on this like on this lockdown and stuff so um I was just you know that that's a that's that's what's really on my heart. Um, you know, I just pray for a lot of people and I just, you know, hope that people just can make it through. This is just, it's only temporary. It's not forever. Um, and we'll get through it. And I encourage people to just utilize their technology as much as possible. If it's just FaceTime and a friend when they feel down, you know, even though we're on this quarantine, we're not locked in our homes, you know, take a walk, get some sunshine, do some small things just to help take your mind off of things that you're dealing with because you know it's not going anywhere you just kind of have to learn how to deal with the situation that we're in because we can't make it go away so you have to kind of reconform your thinking of you know okay let's think positive what are some things I can do you know so it's ways to get around it but that the depression thing is really I I, I read a lot of posts and I you know I just my heart goes out to a lot of people Um, we got to keep people um prayed up and check on people and um, I heard someone say it's not social distancing, it's physical distancing, because social, we could do that. You know, we have so much technology now for us to still be socializing. Absolutely. And I agree. what is one book you can recommend to our listeners? COVID related? Or- um, okay. Um, I have a, um, a book. It's not COVID related, but it's, um, it's, it's, um, it's a book that I'm a co-author of myself and 12 other women had collaborated a couple of years ago and we shot a small documentary and, you know, wrote a book and it was just, um, it's the book is titled women unveiled and it's a book um, where every woman shares like a very horrific point in their life and a turning point where they kind of came from that, that hard time and how they, you know, mm-hmm. arose from all of the negativity and they were able to, you know, continue pushing through life and um, it was stories from, I mean, every, every some from people's childhood to abuse, you know, to um, a young lady that was in med school, African-American young lady that was in med, I mean, not med school, I'm sorry, she was in law school and she went through a whole lot, but she ended up coming out a lawyer, you know, so there's small things. And even though it's not COVID related, it just gives people hope that no matter like what your situation is, you can always come out, come out a winner. Um, if you, you know, if you can just continue to pray and keep your mindset, you know, in a positive state, yeah, you can come out. For sure. And where can um, our listeners uh, find the book? Um, you can find the book on Amazon and also um, if, let me see, I'm not sure if that website is, oh, but I'll leave my email. If, it, if anyone is interested and wanted to purchase um, an autograph copy, my email is uh, troe22 at hotmail.com. Um, it's really simple. I'll say it again. T as in Tammy, Roe, R-O-W-E, the number 22 at hotmail.com. 
and I will provide that information to those um, because I don't have it right off and I apologize for that but I'll provide the information to if anyone emails and they're interested in the book definitely. good stuff Tammy Very good. Um, did you have anything else Russell that is it other than just to say thank you for your time and joining the podcast and thank you for your hard line work that you're doing out there is very commendable and uh, thank you so much I appreciate, I appreciate it. it I'm looking forward to hearing more about your future success with your book and your career thank you thank you so much for having me I really appreciate you all I'm glad that this is you know something that can get out to, to other listeners and get out to people because the, sometimes the news will just frighten people but there's hope on the other side absolutely so. there you go. Yeah. Awesome. So this has been another episode of Matters of the Heart and Soul podcast. We just finished speaking with Miss Tammy Rowe. She's a front. She was a frontline uh, healthcare provider. She was assigned New Jersey, so she just kind of walked us through her experience while she was out there. Um, Matters of the Heart and Soul podcast is inspired by love, God, relationships, spirituality, justice, culture family, children, finances, freedom, personal growth, um, energy and vibrations, universal principles, health, education, masculine and feminine energy, music, and just all things of the heart and soul. So we appreciate your support. Um, Please share this podcast. Our mission is to connect our hearts with our minds, especially during this COVID era. I think we are in a mass awakening and I think it is a good way for us all to stay connected and to raise our vibrations into love. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you so much, Tammy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye-bye.